0: Well, this morning we're getting back to our series in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So please turn there with me. And uh, this morning we're going to think about the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Before we read God's word, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, and you have promised that when we ask, you will give us understanding. And so we ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word would now illumine our minds and give us understanding in the way of true wisdom. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, have you ever wondered why so many people reject the Christian faith? If Christianity is true, then why is it that so many people reject it as foolish? Uh, this is especially true today among intellectual elites the wise of our day they look at christians and say you christians believe in things that are completely indefensible you believe in a god that cannot be seen you believe in a world of angels and demons that cannot be verified you believe god occasionally intervenes and does things you call miracles you you believe people come back from the dead and uh... You believe that one day this same God is going to return again and transform the world. And on top of all of that, you hold to a system of ethics and morality that is outdated, irrelevant, perhaps even bigoted. And we've left all that behind. And so it's time for you to get on the right side of history. It's a common thing we hear today, and. To be honest, when we hear that, we we feel an impact, don't we? we? We may wonder, well, okay, why is this the case? Why is it that if Christianity is true, still so many people, including the intellectuals and wise ones of our day, seem to outright reject it as complete folly? Well, if that's the question Uh, that you have ever asked yourself, then I I want to show you today how God's word speaks directly to that issue. Because it's not as though Christianity at one time fit right in. This was an issue that the Corinthian Christians faced who lived in a culture where many people thought Christianity foolish. In the first century, Corinth was a thriving intellectual center. They were up to speed on the most recent ideas and philosophies. The people of Corinth loved to debate philosophical systems and see which one made the most sense, could be presented the most eloquently, the one that was most persuasive to people's minds. And people took a great deal of pride in their knowledge, in their ability to articulate that knowledge and in that philosophical system's capacity to make sense of the world. And then along came Christianity, and several Corinthians were converted. And those Corinthian Christians very quickly found that the wider Corinthian community regarded Christianity as complete rubbish. And so the Corinthian Christians faced a question what do we make of the fact that the majority of intellectuals, the wise ones of our day, deem Christianity to be a waste of time, to be completely foolish and nonsensical, even moronic, that's one of the words used here. Well, Paul's purpose in this passage is to address that issue. How do you and I make sense of and respond to The world's rejection of the faith. As we look at this passage, I think we're going to see that Paul wants to make three changes. He wants to, to change our expectations. He wants to change our thinking. And then finally, he wants to change our attitude. Those are the three things that we're going to take a look at in this passage. So let's think about the first, how Paul wants to change our expectations. Do you ever think, well, maybe there is a way for us Christians to make Christianity appealing to the world, and perhaps we just haven't found that that way, that method yet of making Christianity appealing to the world. Paul is saying in this passage to us: If if, if you ever tempted to think that, you need to change your expectations. That's what Paul is going to deal with first in this passage because he wants us to understand that Christianity will always appear foolish to the unbelieving world. But maybe, maybe we have this wrong expectation because we've embraced a false assumption. And that false assumption is if if something is true, then most people are going to embrace it and believe it. That's an easy assumption to make, isn't it? If something is true, then most people are going to accept it and recognize the truth. But if we make that assumption, that wrong assumption, it's because we've made another wrong assumption. And that second wrong assumption is that everybody is just a neutral blank slate And and all that they really need is the right information. Right? They just need more data, more more facts. And if they're presented with the facts of the truth, then they will simply embrace it, recognize it for what it is, and believe it. But Paul makes it clear that that's just not how it works. People are not blank slates. They are not neutral. People who already have a belief system, their own ideas about what counts for wisdom, what counts as folly, what's true, what's false, what's good, what's bad, what's right and wrong, what's possible in this world and what's impossible, what's plausible and implausible. Paul tells us that in this passage, one of the things undergirding what Paul says here, as we'll see in just a minute, is that one of the effects of the fall upon Our minds is that our minds are darkened in such a way that we cannot understand the truth about God, the truth of God's word, apart from God first opening up our minds, removing our blindness. And you'll see that's what's lying behind what Paul says in verse 18, where he says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we shouldn't think that the world's rejection of Christianity is evidence that Christianity is false. People, people make that argument. Maybe you've heard that argument today. Okay, if, if Christianity is true, then the vast majority of people who, who hear about it are going to accept it. But a lot of people don't accept it. They reject it as foolish. Therefore, Christianity must not be true. That's the argument. But that doesn't follow from what Paul says here. The world's rejection of Christianity isn't evidence that Christianity is false. It's actually just the opposite. It actually confirms what the Bible says about the Christian faith. Everyone rejects the truths of God's word apart from the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul breaks this down further for us. He he helps us understand why different groups reject Christianity. He basically takes the whole of the human race and and divides them up into two groups. In in the groups of the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Greeks. So let's take a look at each of these groups. First, he says, that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews. In verse 23, he says, uh, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Now, the word there is uh, the word scandalon, from which you can hear it, where we get our word scandal from. The the word of the gospel, the message about Christ crucified is a scandal to the Jews. It is an utter disgrace. It's an embarrassment. And that is because the the expectations for the coming Messiah uh, envisioned the coming of the Messiah being marked by displays of of divine strength and divine power. When the Messiah would come, he wasn't coming to be uh, humiliated and mistreated, he was coming to overthrow the Roman government and reestablish afresh the kingdom of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. This is why Paul says in verse 22, for Jews demand signs. Jews, Jews demanded great displays of divine power when it came to the coming of the Messiah. Right? They expected God to flex his muscles But instead, Jesus came in the weakness of human flesh. And he didn't come to overthrow Rome. In his first coming, he came to lay down his life and suffer and die upon a cross. And so the message about a crucified Christ was a scandal, an embarrassment, a disgrace, and an offense to the Jews because it it defied all of their expectations about the Messiah. But it wasn't just an offense to the Jews. Paul says it's also an offense, this message of a crucified Christ, it's also an offense to the Gentiles or the Greeks. And Paul tells us why. Notice verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Gentiles seek wisdom. Now, the word there, and Paul uses it throughout this passage for wisdom, it's the word Sophia. And when Paul uses the word Sophia, he has something very particular in in mind here. He has in mind the Greco-Roman philosophies of the day. They had an idea of, of what they considered to be wise, what they considered to be intelligent, what they considered to be smart and worthy of acceptance, what they regarded as believable or sophisticated or smart. And Paul is saying here that everything about Christianity went against the things that the Greeks were looking for. And that is why they rejected it. And like the Jews, the cross was also an offense to the, to the Gentiles, but for a slightly different reason. In the Greco-Roman world, to be crucified was the most humiliating way a person could die. It was a complete rejection of that individual to be stripped and hung up and set on display before the world. So why on earth would anyone want to worship a crucified Christ? Some of the philosophers of the day even said Roman citizens shouldn't even think or talk about crucifixion. It was so grotesque. Now some of you will know uh, about this archaeological discovery. I've mentioned it in the past. past. It took place not too long ago in Rome. And uh, this particular discovery, it's dated to end of the first century, beginning of the second century. So not too long after Paul wrote this letter to Corinth. And what it is, is it's, it's an ancient piece of graffiti painted on a wall. But this piece of graffiti, it's it's really telling. The picture is of a man being crucified, but the man on the cross has the head of a donkey, and then at the foot of the cross there's a man bowing down in worship, and there's an inscription underneath this man, and the descript, the inscription reads, "Alexamenos worships his God." Now Alexamenos was likely a Roman Christian, and somebody who knew him apparently wanted to mock him and his God. And the graffiti was essentially saying, Alexa Menos, he worships an ass. How foolish, how stupid can you get? Now, this piece of graffiti, I think it captures pretty well the general sentiment of the Greco-Roman world when it came to Christianity at this time. Who would ever think Christianity is credible when at the very heart of this faith is the message of Christ crucified. And of course that wasn't just true then, it's true today as well. We have our own sophias, our own wisdoms, our own convictions about what's true and what's untrue, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, what's possible, what's impossible, and so on. And So we need to understand this This isn't anything new. And this isn't anything new because in whatever age we find ourselves living in, Christianity is always going to go against the way that natural man thinks. And so Paul is saying, I want you to get your expectations straight, dear Christians. If man thinks this way and... God thinks this way, then what do you think is going to happen when the two meet? Unless the Holy Spirit opens blind eyes, the natural man is going to consider the cross of Christ an utter absurdity. And we have to realize that and be ready for it, because it's not evidence that Christianity is false. It's actually just the opposite, the resistance verifies exactly what God's word says will happen when the gospel confronts the world. So that's the first thing. Paul wants to change our expectations. But then secondly, he wants to change our thinking. We need to change our thinking. The world says Christianity is foolish. But in reality, it is all non-Christian ways of thinking, all non-Christian systems of thought that are in fact foolish. See, Paul is correcting a common misunderstanding. First of all, he's explained why Christianity is foolish in the eyes of the world, but then he makes a quick qualification. That doesn't mean that Christianity is in fact foolish. Yes, it appears foolish from, from the perspective of the world, but that doesn't mean that it is in fact folly. Now, this is important for us to grasp for a couple of reasons. One of them is I think a lot of Christians have have kind of said to themselves in silence, well, maybe maybe Christianity is a little bit silly and, and outdated. Maybe it is a little bit unbelievable and anti-intellectual, but I'll just deal with it. I mean, it works for me. It works for the community of people that I find myself living among, and so I'm just going to go with it. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It may appear foolish from a worldly perspective, but that doesn't mean that it actually is. And the second reason I think this is important for us to grasp is because there is, in our day, very strong intellectual, anti-intellectual strain in Christianity. A lot of Christians today just, just don't care to think. Uh, the doctrines and beliefs and the worldview of the Christian faith just, just doesn't really matter. Right? There, there, there's no concept of a, cultivating a Christian mind today because all that Christianity is good for is the experience. right? How it makes me feel or how it helps me to live uh, life with meaning or whatever. And so what a lot of Christians have done is completely gotten rid of any notion of a Christian way of thinking and, and therefore they're fine adopting and taking in the, the, the way that the world thinks around them and they've reduced the Christian faith to a matter of feeling and experience and living. But that's the opposite of what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to realize that Christianity is in fact intellectually coherent. Though, yes, it's filled with mystery. It's actually unbelief that is incoherent and foolish. Okay, so what is it that's foolish about unbelief? Uh, what's Paul's beef with, with unbelief? He, he could mention a lot of things for sure, but he zeroes in on one major problem. And I think the point that Paul makes here is, on the one hand, it's simple, but incredibly profound. Paul makes it very clear that the problem with unbelief is every system of man-made religion, man's worldviews, at the end of the day, fails and is foolish because it never can arrive at a true knowledge of God. Now, follow, follow this with me. Of course, Paul says elsewhere that everybody knows God at one level. God has planted that knowledge within them and placed them in the theater of his glory so that they live in a world that inevitably proclaims the existence of God. But Paul's talking about a different kind of knowing God, knowing God the way that we ought to in its fullness. And and verses 20 through 21, he's he's talking about this. And he's saying all non-Christian thinking at the end of the day depends upon human wisdom. Mere human reason. Okay, so what he's saying is all non-Christian systems of thought fail because they try to know transcendent truths without actually listening to God. Think about it. Every non-Christian worldview is is based on the assumption that it can proclaim, teach eternal transcendent truths. Right? Truths about God, what God is like, who God is, what, what God might do, what God wouldn't do. Truths about humanity, who we are, and the purpose of human life, what's good and wrong, system of ethics, about heaven and hell, if there is such a thing, and why people go where, and, and, and so forth. But the issue is, if, if all you have is your mind or the mind of someone else, how could you ever reasonably think that you could ever know those sorts of transcendent truths about God and the world and humanity and the life to come? This is, this is what Paul is suggesting, How could you ever think that you'd arrive at reliable knowledge? And so Paul's point is that all non-Christian thinking depends upon men, not God, and therefore it's foolish and it fails. And Paul points this out in a number of ways in this passage. Notice first in verse 19 that God frustrates anyone who thinks that they are wise on their own. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now Paul here is citing Isaiah chapter 29 where the Israelites are facing the Assyrian army. So they face a real dilemma. What what are we going to do? Or, Or better yet, whose wisdom are we going to rely upon as we face being overrun by this Assyrian army? Will it be the wisdom of God or the wisdom of man. Well, the wise ones in Israel at that time were saying, here's what you need to do. You need to form an alliance with Egypt because that's the only way we're going to get out of this alive. And God comes to them and says, you fools, you're relying upon the wisdom of men and I'm going to oppose that. I'm going to frustrate their counsel and expose the folly of their ways. And so the change Paul wants us to make to our thinking here, it's, it's so important. He's saying, if you live your life on the basis of your own wisdom or the wisdom of mere man, and you think that you can know anything about God, about eternal things, about the purpose of your existence, about heaven and hell and so forth, then you are living an irrational and incoherent life. You're living like a fool. Just think about some conversations you've maybe had with non-Christians. Think about all of the grand sweeping truth claims that just get thrown out there. Just think about some of the conversations you've had with non-Christians. Some of the grand truth claims that are just kind of thrown out there. Truths about God. Truths about what God is like and what God isn't like. What God would do and what God wouldn't do. Sweeping generalizations about heaven and hell and who goes where and why. Sweeping generalizations about morality, about what's good, what's bad, what's true, what's not, what's right and wrong. And in the midst of all of those sweeping truth claims, Paul comes and says, how do you know all of these things if all you have is your own reason and wisdom? How could you possibly know what God is like, what How could you know what God would or wouldn't do? How could you know anything about eternity, heaven and hell and so forth, if all you have is mere human wisdom? Because in order to know these things with certainty, you need transcendent knowledge. You need eternal knowledge. And the wisdom of man simply can't get it done. The wisdom of man is not enough. And so it's at this point you see that Christianity is is really unique. Christianity makes big truth claims. Christianity makes claims about God, what God is like, what God would do and wouldn't do, makes truth claims about what's right and wrong and heaven and hell and who goes where and why. But here's the difference. Those claims, insofar as they are faithfully communicated, those claims are not based upon human wisdom. They're not based upon human reason. They're based upon what God himself has said and revealed in his word, the scriptures. So when Christians make truth claims that are according to the Bible, then they are claims on the basis of someone who actually has transcendent knowledge, namely God himself. And so Paul's point here, it really is a profound one, isn't it? If you're going to live a life dependent on mere human knowledge, you are living a profoundly foolish life. I just think about one example of this in our own day Lots of examples we could make here, the folly of non-Christian thought and where it leads us. But let's just think about one example and how it leads us into foolishness. Think about our culture's view today of on sex and sexuality. People, well, it's really commonplace now, isn't it, for people to ridicule the Christian view of marriage and sexuality, even though I often think, People actually don't know what the Christian view of marriage and sexuality is. Nevertheless, it's ridiculed as being outdated, irrelevant, even repressive. And so it's, it's got to go. We know a better way, a, a truer way, a healthier way, a wiser way. And here is the wiser way. Total sexual freedom. Right? Be with whoever, whomever you want to be with. Attracted to whomever you want to be attracted to. Uh, Do whatever you want to do. Just be true to yourself. Follow your heart and don't let any constraints be placed upon you. I just think this through. The non-Christian view claims to be the better, wiser, healthier way. Now has that really proven to be the case? If we just rewind to the 1960s and the sexual revolution and the fruit of that in our own society since then, can we really say that it has proven to be the better way when sexually transmitted diseases are skyrocketing, when depression related to one's sexual history is through the roof and when over 40% of children now in the United States are born out of wedlock and within some ethnic groups that number exceeds 70 percent 70 percent of children being born out of wedlock and therefore having to grow up in a home that's unstable and non-christians say this is this is the better way it's christianity that's foolish but you see what's going on god is actually showing the folly Of all of this kind of thinking by by giving us over to what we say is wise, good, and true. He destroys the wisdom of the wise and shows the wisdom of man to be folly. And so Paul wants us to change our thinking. And non Christian thinking claims to be wise and says Christianity is foolish rubbish. But in reality, unbelief is bankrupt. And Christianity is the way of true wisdom. And the way of true wisdom begins with dependence upon God's word. Dependence upon the self-revealing God who has spoken to us in his word. So Paul changes our expectations, our thinking, and thirdly, our attitude. True Christianity has No place for pride. True Christianity will produce humble Christians. So Paul here is correcting another possible error. Just follow his logic here, okay? He's he's just argued Christianity is the way of, of true wisdom. It's actually unbelief that's foolish. But he knows there's a potential danger there because we could take the belief of that Christianity is true and say, I'm embracing that. I've come to see Christianity is the way of wisdom and the ways of the world are all foolish. And we could begin to take pride in that. We could begin to pat ourselves on the back and say, I've I finally arrived at the way of true wisdom. But Paul says, nope, we need to put a stop to that right now. Because once we've, once we've been convinced that Christianity is true, sadly, don't we know, what, what is the step for, that so many people tend to take at that point. It's to become puffed up with pride, isn't it? Within our own circles, we even have a, a, a name for people coming into the Reformed faith and people talk about the cage stage. But brothers and sisters, it ought not be that way. The truths of the Christian faith shouldn't puff us up with pride. They should humble us to the, to, to, the, to the ground, but, but Paul is trying to help us understand that. If you actually understand how God works, it will make you humble, not proud. Now, why is that? Well, because one of the reasons is because God has opened your eyes to the truth. This is, this is why we should be humble as Christians about what we know, because we wouldn't know it unless God enabled us to know it. He had to open our eyes and illumine our darkened minds and revive our dead hearts and overcome our unbelief. We never would have accepted the truth of Christianity and the truth of the gospel had God not graciously intervened in our lives. In fact, Paul goes out of his way to make this point with respect to the Corinthians in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. It's kind of humorous what Paul is up to here. He's saying, look, let's just take you guys for example. You weren't the smartest people in town. But look, you've become Christians. He's saying, look, you're not Christians because you're super smart or wiser than the next guy. In fact, by worldly standards, let's just be honest about this. You're not a very impressive lot is what Paul is saying. Nevertheless, God loves to work this way. He loves to work this way because he likes to take the the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He, He loves to take the things that are deemed to be unwise. To expose the folly of those who claim to be wise. He likes to take what is weak to shame the strong. But there's another reason God does this in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, not for a second should we ever think that we have reason to boast in ourselves. Because if it wasn't for God's grace, we'd all be living dark, lost, foolish lives. But as a Christian, we can say, God has graciously opened up my eyes. Look at the language of verse 30. And because of him, God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is very clear here. saying, I don't want you to fall into the folly of the philosophers. Here's what they did. They reasoned it all out and then they took pride in their own wisdom. They'd say, you know, see, my philosophy, it's better than their philosophy. See, my philosophy makes more sense than their philosophy. See, I can make a more persuasive case for my philosophy with my eloquence and rhetoric. They actually thought, yeah, I'm smarter. I've got this all figured out. And Paul is saying, no, don't be like that. Yes, Christianity is true. Yes, it's intellectually defensible, but it's, it's not because of you that you're on that path. It's not because of you that you've become a Christian. My professors in college used to say, Christians are like turtles on fence posts. If you see one there, you know it didn't get there on its own. That always stuck with me. Paul is saying here that the reason you are a Christian and the reason you are on the path of true wisdom is because God in his grace has planted you in his son, Jesus Christ, who has become everything you need for life and salvation and wisdom. Now, as we think then about the importance of humility, just for a second, it's important then that we clarify something. Because humility is not uncertainty. That's how a lot of people present humility today, I think, in our culture talk to them about important truths, about matters of life and death, and they'll say something like, well, you don't know, I don't know, nobody can know, we just don't know. We're going to have to wait and see how it all turns out. And they, they they, think that's humility. But humility in the thought world of the Bible is not uncertainty. Um, to be humble is not to be unsure. So here's Paul's impor- important point here. You can be absolutely sure about the truth of Christianity and humble at the same time. And here's how. You can know absolute certainty and uh, have assurance about the truth of Christianity by realizing that that certainty isn't founded upon you. It's not based upon you. That certainty is based upon the self-revealing God who makes himself known in scripture. But you can also have humility at the same time because you realize and know that God renewed your mind and gave you a new heart to receive this body of truth. And so a Christian can be certain and humble together at the same time. And this is, I think, another unique feature of Christianity. There are lots of worldviews out there today which claim certainty certainty about uh, matters of eternity. But they lack humility because they have to say at the end of the day, on the basis of sheer human reason and wisdom, we've arrived at this truth. And so they can start patting themselves on the back and saying, we, f- we figured it all out. It's a worldview that inevitably breeds pride. It's only in Christianity that you can have certainty and humility together. Sadly though, we have to confess, don't we? That doesn't mean that all Christians are humble the way that they ought to be and we ought to repent of our intellectual pride. But here's the thing. If we understand the gospel, if we understand, have come to terms with the truths of God's word, it will produce humility And that's the point Paul is making here. And so in this passage, Paul Paul wants to change our thinking in these three ways. He wants to change our expectations. Christianity will always appear to be folly in the eyes of the world. He wants to change our thinking. Worldly wisdom claims Christianity is foolish, but in fact, it's worldly ways of thinking that are foolish, and it's Christianity that is the way of true Wisdom. Paul also then wants to change our attitude. Certainty about the gospel drives you to humility, not pompous pride. Do you know, as we wrap up here, there, there is more to say about that Alexamenos graffiti. Archaeologists have discovered that there is, in fact, more that was written on this piece of graffiti. Under the original inscription, someone came along later. And wrote underneath it, underneath uh, Alexamenos worships his God, someone wrote, Alexamenos is faithful. Perhaps a fellow uh, believer came to Alexamenos' defense to say, No, Alexamenos is faithful to his God. And you see, dear friends, this is what Paul is calling us to in this passage. Don't seek intellectual credibility with the world. Don't make that your end goal, because the only way you'll achieve that goal is by capitulating to the demands for signs or worldly wisdom. Realize that while the world calls you foolish for what you believe, it is in fact the world that is engaged in folly. But don't let that lead you then to start patting yourself on the back and puffing yourself up. Because you are what you are and you know what you know by the grace of God that has planted you firmly in Jesus Christ. And so our call is to be faithful because although the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, it is the wisdom of God, those who are being saved. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text, this reminder that your ways are the ways of true wisdom, that true wisdom has been revealed in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we commit ourselves to you and to this gospel, and we pray that you would sustain us and keep us and make us faithful, change our expectations change our thinking, change our attitude, make us humble, faithful Christians. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.